Amen. Well, for my message this morning, I have no appropriate words of introduction, except to say that this is one of those provoking and uncomfortable passages in Scripture that gets into our face very quickly and compels us uh, to think about two things. First of all, about the rottenness of sin, and secondly, about the goodness of God and his gospel. So take up your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, reading verses 27 through 32. Matthew 5, beginning at verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. I tell you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right hand causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell and If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Well, we have um, seen already um, the great concern that Jesus has uh, over the scribes and the Pharisees. And his concern was that they they really did not understand the law of God properly. They were continuously um, uh, guilty of reducing uh, the meaning and even the demands of the law to an external formula, uh, and and uh, that that and even addressing that never really addressed uh, the heart of the commandments that that never really addressed um, the nature of sin, the true nature of sin. So, you see, they reduced, uh, for example, the prohibition against murder, the Sixth Commandment, to a very narrow, literal definition that completely avoided the underlying matter of of anger. We looked at that uh, last Lord's Day. And, And they did the same thing with the Seventh Commandment, which we just read regarding adultery. Uh, reducing it to uh, simply a prohibition against the actual physical act of adultery. But Jesus, who is the lover of your souls, requires you to get to the heart of that commandment so that you might see uh, the degree of righteousness that he wants and the degree of love that he shows us in providing for us. He wants us to read these verses in such a way as to understand the law of God in its true, full sense. Jesus' commentary, his his expansion, his breaking open of God's full intent in the Sermon on the Mount, this allows us from simply breezing through Matthew 5 and ticking off a list blithely, uh, and, and so, so as, without understanding the full weight and depth of those commandments. Didn't do that, didn't do this. 
fine. Or to say it another way, Jesus warns us away from the speech of the rich young ruler. Um, who, you remember, when he heard the commandments, uh, said to Jesus, All of these I've kept since my youth. I'm not a murderer. I'm not an adulterer. Well, no. Not literally. But he was, in fact, an adulterer because he had an adulterous love affair with his bank account. And Jesus challenged him to sell everything he had and give it to the poor and follow him. That was like tearing out his eyes or cutting off his hands. Do you get it? And well, he wouldn't do it. And in fact, he walked away from Jesus. He walked away from the Lord Jesus rather than give up his, his, his earthly goods. Or at least some of them. He wouldn't do it for admission into the kingdom of heaven. So to deliver us from that sort of righteousness that ultimately drives us to the cross, Jesus gives us these examples that are divine to uh, that are designed to, to help us to recognize the true and devastating nature of the law of God here in the Sermon on the Mount. In verses 21 to 26, he uncovered the true meaning of the passage uh, of, of the impact of the Sixth Commandment, talking to us about raising the issue of anger. We looked at that last week. Now, in our text in 27 to 30, Jesus turns to another example, and that of lust. So, he says, I say to every one of you, whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And really, that ought to get our attention because the Bible makes it very clear that the sexually immoral, including unrepentant, adulterous people, have no place in the kingdom of heaven, but rather will be consigned to the place of judgment. But, the act of physical adultery doesn't simply jump out of nowhere, does it? It, it begins with sexual immorality. It begins with lust. It begins with uninhibited, unrestrained sexual desire and passion by which endless numbers of men and women and young people have destroyed themselves, have destroyed their marriages, defrauding someone's son, defrauding someone's daughter or someone's husband or someone else's wife of their purity and of their honor. A sexual lust in its, all of its nasty forms tears up families, it scandalizes the church, it fills communities with broken, dysfunctional families, it weakens our social fabric. How many women have been consigned to a life of raising children by themselves because of the thoughtless, treacherous young men who have raped or um, emotionally forced themselves upon those young women, innocent or not. Sex sells. It sells movies, it sells games, it sells DVDs, and every other imaginable or unimaginable product in the world. Pornography feeds lust. It's like gasoline to a fire. And like a fire, guys, it's never satisfied. It's always, give me more of that stuff. Uh, it always grows, and it grows until it, it consumes a person. It ruins their marriage, or the marriage that they'll someday enter into. It has spawned a billion-dollar industry of pornography, that, uh, a wicked a parasite that, 
that has skyrocketed from a few nasty magazines sold in dark stores in the worst part of town to literally millions of websites. It's a drug. It's an addiction. But let me, let me stop at this point and say again to you uh, that the great purpose and the great weight of, of, of our Lord raising this issue uh, and the, all these issues of anger or lust or adultery is not to be understood simply as some sort of moral lecture on these very serious issues, but also to use these things as illustrations and, and as examples of the terrible power of sin over our lives. It will never wash to think of yourself as a little sinner in need from time to time of a little grace. The only way to value and love Jesus the only way to understand why God the Father was compelled to the almost inconceivable, seemingly desperate remedy of sending His only beloved Son from heaven to earth to drink from that bitter, uh, deadly cup of His righteous anger is to come to grips with the true meaning, the true measure of sin. And so, um, a little description of the power of sin over our lives. Um, First of all, sin is perverting. It, it is completely perverting, by which I mean to say that it distorts, it ruins, it debases, it vitiates everything. We are totally depraved, totally disabled by our sin, meaning that, that sin corrupts everything that we think one way or do one way or another. Even, even our best intentions are tainted with selfishness, at, at, at least. It's only by the grace of God, we call it common grace, that restrains the world of men from being far worse than they are. And I will spare you the withering list that Jesus gives us in Mark 7 to describe the evil that comes from the human heart. We'll simply quote the Apostle Paul who says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. No, all have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. There's a lot of no's in that short sentence. Secondly, sin is selfish. It's perverting, it's selfish. Sexual morality, lust, uh, adultery are all utterly selfish, always self-serving, always directed toward, um, towards one's own profit or one's own pleasure. That's the way it is. Sin is self-focused, um, self-interested, self-indulgent. It's, it's my right, so stand aside. Um, we, men are, by very nature, lovers of self. We're careful to serve ourselves first, and we, and we call it self-preservation or proper self-respect. And we say, well, you have to learn to love yourself before you learn love, love other people. Where does that say that in the Bible? It doesn't say that. We love ourselves plenty. We don't need to learn to love ourselves. <laughs> That's natural. We need to learn to love others. Well, this is the way it is. The sin of Adam and Eve... Uh, and the garden was selfish. And every sin that followed is followed as some form of self-indulgent pattern. So perverting, selfish, and deceptive. It's completely deceptive. We are so deceived by our sin 
perfectly described, I think, by the adulterous woman in Proverbs, we're told, who, who eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. Look what's going on in the world around us. Uh, look at the misery and the discord and the hatred. But, but who's willing to admit to anything that we're sinners or who's willing to admit it's our fault? We have a thousand excuses for ourselves. The hard truth is that outside of the grace of God, we're all completely blind to our sin. Even as Christians, we're often miserably self-deceived. Here's a man who is so carelessly loveless of his wife that when, he, when things finally fall apart and end up in the council or the pastor's office, he looks squarely at that man in the face and says, and looks his wife in the face and says, I don't understand, everything's fine. He's not a monster. He's just self-deceived. He's blinded by his sin, by his self-love and pride and unbelief. He thinks everything is fine when everything is not fine. Jesus said something else. He said that um, that sin is also very powerful. Um, He said, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. A sin enslaves us. It, It kills us with and we're dead uh, to our trespasses and uh, in our trespasses and sins. That means we're dead to God. We're dead to spiritual truth. We're destined uh, for eternal death and the age to come. Sin is that powerful. It does all of that. The unregenerate man, the unsaved man, the natural man, cannot ultimately change himself any more than a leopard can change his spots. Oh, we might be able to initiate some kind of of reform. Uh, we might, by dint of moral force and conviction and self-effort, turn away from the most obvious and destructive habits. But by nature, we're sinners and we love it. And, 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 and even when we hate it, even when we're powerless to change it, uh, we can't even express godly sorrow and repentance for our sin outside of the grace of God. So, perverting, selfish, deceptive, powerful. And one last thing about sin that describes the memory, summarizes it all, and that's to say it's utterly ruinous. Uh, We're spiritually and eventually uh, physically destroyed or ruined by our sin. It ruins our conscience. It ruins our peace. It often ruins the works of our hands. It ruins our relationships with men and God alike. I'll bring you back to the rich young ruler. What hope is there for this man whose heart has become so idolatrous, so selfish, so, so um, deceived, uh, so powerfully gripped and utterly ruined that he turns away from the living God, he turns away from the Savior. And, um, and, and we're told he's sorrowful. Yes, he's sorrowful, but not so powerful, sorrowful that he's willing to give up his idols for the sake of eternity. It's really a dark picture. What hope is there? Sin is so ruinous and, and, and debilitating as I've described it, as the scriptures describe it, and is illustrated for us in this matter of lust. I mean, who can be saved? What hope is there to be had? I wish I could exclude myself from this verse, but, but I cannot altogether. And I dare say, uh, neither can any of you. So, what hope is there? in the world, for the nation, for ourselves. Well, that's, of course, 
what the disciples wanted to know following Jesus' encounter with that rich young ruler. I mean, he was a young man who seemed to have it all together. And, and they're saying, well, if he can't do it, I mean, who can? And they, and they say to Jesus, who then could be saved? And Jesus responds, listen to this. He says in Mark 10, 27, With man it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. So, what has God done to make it possible for us to escape the power of sin over our lives? How can we find that righteousness that it surpasses even that of the Pharisees? Well, you know, don't you? We find refuge in salvation in the gospel, in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 6, 9. This is a really great verse. And, uh, great is hard to put it that way, but it's a very important and, and useful verse. Truthful verse. 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 9. I think that might be on page 955 in a pew Bible. I'm not sure. Well, here's what the Apostle Paul says. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that unrighteousness, or the unrighteous, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There it is. We don't need to dwell on the Apostles' ugly list of the things that disqualify us for a place in heaven. We're all included somewhere in verses 9 to 10 of that list, every one of us. It's the last verse, verse 11, that we need to look at. And such were some of you. The Apostle is speaking very generously, graciously, pastorally to the Corinthian believers. Such were all of them, but he says, such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Three important words in that text. And the first is the, well, the first is the regenerating work of the Spirit. Uh, the first is the word washed. Uh, when the Lord tells us that we were washed, um, he's referring, the Apostle is referring to the regenerating power of God the Holy Spirit who sovereignly works in the lives of sinners, giving them an interest in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're dead. What does dead mean? It means dead. Dead people don't get up and say yes to Jesus. Dead people don't do anything. They're dead. They're just lying. They're stiff. He says, you are dead. Um, uh, we're dead in our sins. We're powerless. We're blind. We're self-deceived. Remember, but we are spiritually quickened. 
We're made alive in Christ. Uh, we're, we're able, that God can give us an interest in the Lord Jesus through the work of the Spirit. The Apostle says this in his letter to Titus. He says he saved us. He saved us not because of righteous deeds we've done, but because of his mercy. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewal by the Holy Spirit uh, who he gives us generously in the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. So, God the Holy Spirit does this. This is the first part of our salvation. It's all of grace. It's all of God's mercy. We're dead in our sins. We need something powerful. We need something supernatural. We're unashamed supernaturalists in this church. If you don't believe in the supernatural, well, I'm sorry, but we believe in this. Because it's true. We see it. We see it in our lives. We see it in the Bible. We see it in the lives of others. We're made alive. We have to be made alive. We have to be regenerated. And we made to be willing to, to turn our eyes towards Jesus. That's what we need. That's what we pray for. That's what we pray that will happen with our family, with our friends. Lord, please open this man's eyes. I've been telling him about the gospel for 20 years. I've shown him passages. I've given him tracts. I've talked to him. He never even understands the first word. Open his eyes, Lord. See, we're praying for that regenerating work of the Spirit. Uh, now, the third word, the order is not important in my opinion. It's actually the second now. Is justified. Um, you were justified. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here the apostle is speaking about God's gracious, sovereign act of making us right through the Lord Jesus Christ. Regeneration is a supernatural act of God's grace. Justification is a legal act, a forensic act, a judicial act of God's sovereign grace. We are legally, we are judiciously declared, important word, declared to be forgiven of our sins for the sake of Christ. We're declared by God. If God declares you to be forgiven, you're forgiven. If someone says, oh, you're not forgiven, you say, well, I'm sorry, but God says I'm forgiven. That's good enough. That's what we want. Um, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross being received is received as full payment for the debt of our sin. Jesus paid it all. Our sin is completely covered by the Lord Jesus Christ, past, present, yes, even future. Um, but that's not all. Because God's gift in the Lord Jesus Christ for sinners includes not only complete forgiveness of all of our sins, but also the gift of the righteousness of Christ. All of the perfections of Christ. Jesus never sinned. There's no bad record for him. The book with his name on it doesn't say all these bad things like ours does. It, it says what the Father says. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. He lived a perfect life. And all of that perfection is imputed or credited to us. We get his record. We're covered, as it were, with the robes of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is, his perfection, his holiness, his obedience is counted as ours. In justification, we're completely forgiven and we're completely righteous. God looks upon us. You're more righteous than Adam is because Adam had nothing more than his own righteousness. You have the righteousness of Christ. 
That's the best, the best news you ever heard. Honestly. You never heard anything more better than that. That you have all of that. How can our righteousness suppress that of the Pharisees? <laughs> Only when we confess Christ. Uh, when we receive the gift of God's justification offered to us in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's a third word. The last or the second of the three words used in um, Corinthians 6.11 is the word uh, sanctified. Um, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Sanctification is most assuredly a work of God's grace. Um, but, unlike justification, it requires our active participation. Um, the power of Christ uh, on, uh, at, on the cross unleashes the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. You're no longer bound helpless by sin. You're no longer powerless, no longer utterly self-deceived and ruined. As new creations, we all happily desire and seek through the power of the Spirit to follow Jesus every day and to become more Christ-like every day. Having been saved, now we seek to follow Him. We want to put off sin and put on uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and notice the urgency of it, which is represented here in our primary text in verses 29 and 23, 20, 30 with these sort of striking words, if your right hand crosses you to sin, cut it out, cut it off and throw it away. It's better to, to uh, lose one of your members and your body be thrown into hell. Jesus is not expecting us in these verses to gouge out eyes and lop off hands. He's simply using a very shocking expression to underline the urgency of seeking after the righteousness of Christ. And we can do this. We can be saved. We can follow Christ as never before. Now, probably I've made this too complicated and this morning and said more than I should have. But I want you to see uh, from these verses in the Sermon of the Mount that Jesus is showing us that the righteousness we must have to enter the kingdom, to enjoy a life in this age and especially in the age to come, is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Jesus raises the issue of the law, uh, of anger and lust, uh, and, and, and so on, uh, simply to disabuse us of the idea that we are little sinners who need just a few more rules and everything will be fine. He wants to disabuse us of the shallow view of the law that either leaves us very discouraged and disappointed and sorrowful like the rich young ruler, or very smug and content with ourselves, ending up no better than the scribes and the Pharisees. He wants us to understand that the overwhelming power of sin in our lives and in the world around us, uh, in order to escape that, we must cast ourselves on the Lord Jesus Christ and experience the far more overwhelming power of His grace. He wants us to repent of our sin and our proud unbelief and ask God to forgive us and to save us. There's a way God can do this. He arranged for it out of His love. 
by sending the Lord Jesus Christ as a Savior and calling us to turn away from sin and rest in His gospel, His righteousness in Christ. And by His strength and by His grace to follow Him closely. Is there someone here this morning who needs to be turning and uh, saving faith to the Lord Jesus? Let him repent of his sin and ask Jesus to save him. Is there someone who sees dark shadows of, of lust and, and idolatrous immorality in their, in their lives? Let them turn from it and recommit themselves to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins might be blotted out and that times of refreshing might come from the presence of the Lord. The Apostle Peter said that. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your uncompromising law. It is our joy to follow it, Lord. We see much wisdom in it. We, we see uh, goodness in it. And yet, Lord, we, we cannot follow it outside of your grace. And we know that and it shows us that. And so we, we thank you for your provision in the Lord Jesus Christ and for that good life that we can have by casting ourselves and trusting in you. Lord, we uh, pray, I pray for each one here, uh, those who may be listening over um, the live stream too, that they might hear these words and receive them uh, in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.